always say that I help people make really, really cool stuff faster. That's just all it is. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 141. This week, we're discussing additive manufacturing and creating workspaces where people thrive. Our guest this week is Lisa Block, Chief Revenue Officer at Hybrid Manufacturing Technologies. Now, Hybrid Manufacturing Technologies is a pretty cool company. They are pioneering the combination of 3D printing and machining. They leverage direct energy deposition to type 3D printing for metals while combining it with a CNC process to create the finished part. Anyway, that was a lot of detail for the first few sentences of this intro. So let me jump into three things you can expect from this episode. First up, we're going to learn a bit about Lisa and her path to additive manufacturing. Second, we talk additive manufacturing. I learned a couple things in this conversation, and we also get a fresh take on a question that comes up in almost all of our conversations about additive. Third, the last half of the interview is a bit of a wild card, but Lisa shares a lot of great advice on how to create workspaces that allow people to do their best work. From talent development ideas to diversity, equity, and inclusion, Lisa got me thinking about a couple of things in a way I hadn't thought about them before, and I hope you get some of that out of today's conversation as well. As always, if you want to access any of the resources from today's episode, and you'll definitely want to do that if you're into additive manufacturing, there are some nice resources over there to complement this episode. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 141. That'll take you to the show notes page for this episode, episode 141. And my only call to action for you before this interview starts is, hey, if you like this episode, please share the link to this episode with your friends, with your colleagues, and certainly if you can, share it in a post on LinkedIn with what you learned from the episode. We've been getting a lot of new listeners to the show recently. I'd love to keep that growing. This is a high-quality episode, and I know you're going to hear it, and you're going to think, gosh, my network needs to hear this as well. So, hey, if you can, share the episode. would greatly appreciate it. If not, uh, no sweat. But, hey, if you can go the extra mile, I will certainly be thanking you very, very soon. Anyway, with that, it's time to start today's interview. Let's meet up with Lisa out on the West Coast. Lisa, great to have you here. If we were having today's conversation over a beverage, where would that be? Paint the picture for us. Oh my goodness, it would be in sunny Newport Beach, California on the pier as we watch the waves crash in. I would probably have an angry orchard because I am a girly drink kind of person. So real beer drinkers probably won't consider that beer, but it would be an angry orchard and I'd like you to choose a beverage of your choice. Absolutely. I picture I've I've been on those little boats yeah. out there in, yes. in Newport before. It is a great spot for a cider, a beer, whatever it may be. So my hometown. Ah, yep. there we go. So let's say we're having this conversation in uh in sunny Newport Beach. 
And, you know, we really want to get to know you first as we dive into this. So, you know, when we chatted before this interview, you it looks like you got your start in the working world at a pretty young age, right? Like you were in automotive, CAD and CAM. How how did you find yourself down this path so early? Well, so let me backtrack a little bit. Um, I was kind of hurled, right? I I always tell people there are times when life kind of throws things at you and um, they feel inconvenient and unfair at the time, but they end up being very kind to you and giving you a skill set you never knew you had. And so in my particular case, um, I was the uh, child in a single parent home at the time and my mother had a stroke. Um, that made me very responsible for our finances and I had to get a job. So I um, found myself doing something as uh, insignificant to most people as data entry at night. But when you're 16 years old, that's like hitting the mother alone, you know, of <laughs> a job you get. You're like, you mean you're going to pay me 10 whole dollars an hour? Uh, that's not a lot now, but um, way back in 1992, I think I just gave away my age. That was a lot of money. So <laughs> I was super excited about it. Um, and I started off doing data entry there. Um, my boss there really noticed very, very quickly how quickly I was able to learn skills and just started to throw things at me. I went from there, which was a mortgage company, into a um, the creative technologies company, which is an automotive design company that did concept cars for companies like General Motors or even for film. Um, we had a car in one of the James Bond films. So you name it. Um, that's kind of how I got introdu- introduced to any uh, level of additive manufacturing, CAD and CAM and 3D printing and prototyping. And then I went from there to a more educational background with the art institutes and started looking at their uh, game art and design programs and just working with the marketing team there. And then I transitioned from there into uh, visual merchandising and they all utilized 3D printing. And so I like to tell people that I kind of got my start in additive manufacturing um, by being stalked by the industry. I feel like it kind of popped up in all areas of my uh, career. And it's just been a loving relationship ever since between me and additive. Yeah, I uh, I have to ask a question that I didn't have planned originally, but what was it like working on a car from a Bond film, right? <laughs> like, that's got to be pretty cool. Well, I wish I could say that I was in the back spraying the car down. I was more like the person working in the office and paying all the bills and going down to the warehouse just to check its progress and, and taking pictures in front of it. That was pretty much what I did, but it was still pretty cool. All the things they did were amazing. And that was the, one of the joys of working in Southern California. You somehow always had an intersection with the film industry. So super awesome. I, I had a feeling that intersection was was not accidental by yeah. any means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking of accidental, I believe you've described yourself as an accidental additive manufacturing person. You just yeah. started touching on that, but tell yeah. us what you mean by that, right? Tell us more about your entry into that space. Yeah, well, it, it's so funny because I was talking to a colleague. We just did a panel on this at um, a, a, a trade show last week. And one of the things I talked about was 
Um, they were trying to determine how you determine what people should study as a cognate when they go into university so that they can come out and be added manufacturing uh, experts or gurus or whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that I constantly tout is the fact that I was just passionate about something, right? I was passionate about what I did in my area of additive. It is largely related to revenue, sales, marketing. We are the people that make the ideas work. There are awesome engineers and applications engineers that come up with these wonderful creations, right? But we are the people behind the scenes making sure they have the money they need to fuel all the R&D and the money they need to put, you know, out new product lines. And we're, we're, we're the, we're the magic behind the scenes. So I tell people all the time, you know, um, being an accidental additive person is a gift because additive is one of the few industries that really welcomes people with passion, whatever you're passionate about. That's the area in which you're going to shine. And if you're going to shine in any area, additive really wants you as a contributor because obviously that makes additive shine as well. Well, this this makes sense, right? We're going to talk about passion and work a little later. But first, we want to talk a little bit about additive manufacturing, right? Because I want to hear your expertise in this area. So we'll start off with a, a question that's perfect if we're having beverages in Newport Beach. So... What's what's the real value of additive manufacturing? How do you answer that if you're having drinks Ooh. with someone? I always say that I help people make really, really cool stuff faster. That's just all it is. Manufacturing, traditional manufacturing, as we all know, um, is the backbone of our society. Everything is made. Everything we find joy in, we enjoy is made. Um, additive manufacturing a lot, uh, a lot of times when people hear additive manufacturing, they think 3d printing. The first thing they think is a house. Oh, I saw a house on the news because that's what's new and cool. Right. But the truth of the matter is there are so many families. There's actually seven families of additive manufacturing. Um, and they all have a different purpose. They all have a different level of greatness and awesomeness. Uh, a lot of them are complementary and work well together. And so um, I think the difference in additive manufacturing is just that it enables even the traditional manufacturing person to make the things that they have more sustainable, uh, quicker. Um, sometimes it's not always quicker, but it's stronger. Um, there, there just it just depends on what your value add is and what your ultimate need is. There's almost always a tool in additive for that need. I have to ask, we got to get down to nuts and bolts a little bit, because this is the first time that I've heard that there are seven families of additive manufacturing. Yes. And and I imagine this could be a very long answer, but can you give us like the short version of what those seven families are? Oh, you're going to make me. OK, I got to pull up my little I have a, a visual aid. I'm sorry. I would have prepped it for you. Hold on. Oh, that's OK. That's OK. I'm learning as we go. So this is a perfect <laughs> opportunity to pull it up. Yes. So let me pull up. Okay, so to answer your question, seven families of additive manufacturing. There is VET photopolymerization, right? Um, alternative names for that would be stereolithography. There's there's a, a whole lot of long words, but it would just basically be VET photopolymerization, powder bed fusion, which is a technology our company gets confused for a lot, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Binder jetting, sheet lamination, uh, material jetting material extrusion, and then my favorite directed energy deposition. Wow. 
I can only imagine this could be an hour long podcast talking yes. about that. In and, and I can share itself. the visual if you want it. I will send it to you so you can put it in there if you want it and all that good stuff. I was going to say, for everyone listening, the visual will be included in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. I interview people periodically on additive manufacturing, probably every six months or so. And I think yeah. the quest, the answer to the question I'm about to ask can change over time. It's always, what is one of the biggest misconceptions or misnomers around additive manufacturing today? Yes. So. As we record this in May 2023, what's one of the current misnomers around additive manufacturing? Oh, can I have, can I have two? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> the first one would be that it is a cure-all. Uh, people walk into additive, see it, it's very cool. And they go, this can solve all of my problems. And the truth of the matter is, is that's not true unless you know... Um, every bit of what your problem is because a lot of times people see cool and they're excited about adopting because it's cool and they're not asking themselves if it's the right solution for their particular problem just because something can make something doesn't mean it's the most cost effective thing for you to adopt it doesn't mean that it's the right uh, tool for your particular manufacturing environment so I think a lot of times, um, one of the biggest misconceptions is that additive is going to solve all my problems when they often forget that additive is a tool, just like a CNC machine is a tool. Every tool has a kryptonite. Every tool has something that's not perfect that has to be worked through and additive is no different. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah. was, I, I might've missed that. So that was that, was that two? parts in there i thought i heard one one thing that, that was just been, one that was one yeah, okay was i was one. gonna be like oh i'm, I'm like yeah. i'm normally a better listener than so what was number so what's yeah. number two i gotta ask that <laughs> the second yeah yeah the second one is that um additive is is in some way intending to replace traditional manufacturing or in any way meant or created to remove jobs from, from uh traditional manufacturing professionals it is not meant to do that. In fact, it's meant to make their jobs easier and more efficient so that the company can then 10x that and have more production and more internal R&D and then make things better. So a lot of times we, especially in our area of it, where there is a cross section between traditional manufacturing and additive manufacturing, we have Bob, the CNC machinist who's been at this for 50 years going, I don't want to adopt this and I don't want to learn it you just try to take my job. And we're like, no, Bob, we need you to make this work, right? We need you um, to make additive the star. We need you to be an evangelist for this, to tell everyone, oh my gosh, like I, I was working on a part, I messed up and this additive let me fix my mistakes so I don't have to chuck that part and start over. This is great. So um, that would be my, my two. One being that it's not a magic wand. It's not going to solve all your problems. You will still have to work through it to get it to, to come to, you know, the fullness of what it's capable of doing. And two would be, we don't want to replace Bob's job. We want to help Bob do his job better. It's a, 
it's funny. I'll let you in on a little manufacturing happy hour secret. The, our keenest audience members might know this, but Bob makes a lot of appearances in the industrial world because because this week, Bob was a machinist. Last week's episode, Bob, who is an example during that episode, was an old school IT director. So Hilarious. Bob, we always think Bob. <laughs> Bob, Bob. I should have said Bubba. I almost yeah. said Bubba. <laughs> Bubba's, Bubba's a good one. Bob, Bob, yes. Bubba. They're getting Bob a lot of Bubba. good experience experience out there. Yes. Lots of good Bob, experience. Bubba and Mike. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, hey, that was super helpful getting your take on some of the current yeah. misconceptions around additive manufacturing. I, I have one last question, could turn into two, who knows, but you do a lot of panels and talks around additive manufacturing. And you know, one of the titles that stuck out from one of your talks recently, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Mastering the Pivot, like what to do during times of downturn in 3D printing. I'd love to hear maybe some of your sage wisdom from that talk or maybe another talk that was more recent for you. So there are two. We did Mastering the Pivot and we also did one called The Unsung Heroes. And we talked about the people behind the scenes and additive that just kind of are the ones that 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 need some celebration as well because they are working hand in hand with all the engineers in the industry. I will say this, one of the the things, the consensus that we all came to with mastering the pivot was that we were not solid on whether or not there really is economic downturn in our industry. I think a lot of times um things are communicated in a certain way because you start to see some of your colleagues that you normally see exhibiting or not exhibiting or you normally see them present they've laid off some staff you know you, there are a lot of things that you see and you go oh we must be a downturn it's collapsing we're all going to be unemployed in 6 months there there must be something wrong and the truth of the matter is is there is no technology there is no business that has ever sub- survived an economy um, when an economy is suffering that has not been in some way, shape, or form affected by it. That's just the way it is. We would be, I would say, uh, professionally arrogant if we thought on any level that if our entire economy was affected financially in a negative way, that we would not in some way, shape, or form see that in the industry. Um, so my answer to that is I don't believe we're in economic downturn. I think we're in a season of caution. I think people are being more intentional about the purchases they make. They are spending more time doing proof of concept so they know that they're adopting the right tools. I like to liken that to more education in the area of how to adopt versus it being an economic downturn thing. I think people are just vetting the tools that they're bringing in-house a little deeper. And then, of course, just people adopting at a slower rate because they are cautious about what's going on. We are having to make decisions every single day that are not just for the well-being of the company, but for the well-being of our employees. And sometimes that means I don't get to buy three or four four million dollar machines this year. Because I need to make sure Bob and Mike and Bubba, you know what I mean, have a job a little longer just in case some of our customers are starting to feel the effects of the economy, right? Nobody thought we were going to be out here paying $47 for eggs. We would be, <laughs> we would be, you know, remiss if we just ignored that. So I, my, our final takeaway from that was I don't think that we're in t- times of economic downturn. I think we are seeing more caution, um, probably justified caution 
in that we are still recovering from a pandemic that was fin- a financial upheaval for a lot of people. One thing, well, let me say this, a lot of things I liked about that answer, but one that sticks out that I'll reiterate is you mentioned there's caution, but one, in addition to that, you mentioned there's more education. So people are getting smarter about the tools and technologies they invest in. And that is super refreshing to hear because when when I've talked to IT leaders or people that are leading transformations within their company, there tend to be shiny object syndrome. It's like, we need yes. this tool, we need that tool. But I like that you highlighted that you're seeing people, whether it's maybe some concerns about the economy and some caution. I like that people are being more deliberate with how they learn and then what they invest in at that point. Absolutely. Because if they're more cautious and if they're more deliberate about learning about the tools they adopt, they'll actually use them. It doesn't help any of us for someone to buy something. They're so frustrated with it that they sit it off in a corner and it's never used because you know, what happens is that person, they move on from the company. That equipment is still sitting in the corner. A new person comes on, doesn't know what that equipment does. And so the, the name that we get is, oh, Additive is just this shiny object that nobody understands and nobody can use and it's not useful. And that's just not true. So I am excited. I'm I'm frustrated from a sales perspective and when it comes to people adopting slower, but I'm excited um, as an industry professional because I know that that means that there will be people that will say, okay, all tools are great, but all tools are not great for me. I'm just looking for that one that's great for me. That frees up additive professionals to seek out their particular customer. So they're not talking to everyone. They're just talking to the person that they need to service. And I think that drives us faster than anything else. I think uh, we'll see a huge boom as a result of it. Well, putting my sales hat on as well, that results in people are being more selective. And I've seen plenty of tools, whether physical or digital, collect dust. If they're actually in use, then you're getting those testimonials. So, you know, you just end up with a better, more, let's say, deliberate customer base at that point. Yeah. And volume sales as well, right? Because if I know, oh my goodness, this is the the, the machine I need on my floor and I already have 15 CNCs on my floor. And this one machine has saved me a million dollars this year. I need four of those, right? As opposed to us, you know what I mean? Working for three years going, you know, do you want another one? Do you want another one? Do you want another one? I know I want another one because now I have experience with it working. I don't have, it's not a hard sell for me internally because everyone can see the bottom line is improved. So I just think it's a, a transition of mindset and focus of how we communicate things. And then giving our clients the grace to have that learning process happen. I think that's the game changer. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i glad we mixed in a bit of a selling conversation. To yeah, this. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of Shout people out are my getting... salespeople. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. To Lisa's, Lisa's sales team. Keep keep up the great work. One thing that I want to bring up, you actually started segueing to our next topic pretty nicely was you mentioned that. Your other talk was focused on celebrating, let's say, support people, the people behind the scenes, if you will. And when we chatted before, you brought up just a plethora of, let's say, development topics, leadership topics, et cetera. So 
The first one is I think the industry does a good job of preparing executives or people that are going to move through the ranks as like a leader of a company per se, or maybe who you'd consider a traditional leader of a company. They have a lot of good development plans in there, but you've highlighted how important it is to create personal development plans for support staff. And I'd love to dive into that, like why and how you do that. Yeah. Well, let's begin with the fact that they are necessary. Um, I um, would um, kind of ping pong back at you. The the idea that um, senior executive um, level employees are given a, a, a tool path to that seat. That's just not true in some environments. Um, I believe that the best leaders have been intentional about their own personal development. Um, so in my particular case, personal development was important to me and I wanted to unify with an employer that did see that value in that as well. And so they welcomed the environment for personal development. I believe that character is born in personal development. So if we are going to have wonderful products and great parts and great companies that begins with people and people is what, you know, to be honest with you, I'm most passionate about because that's where all of the development happens, right? Um, so if you need people, then the first thing you need is character development and you need people that identify what kind of person they want to be in the professional environment, in their home environment, what is it they want to see from themselves? And so a lot of times it starts with personal goals. Um, I in, in five years, I want to learn this school, uh, this skill. In three years, I want to be finished with school. Whatever that is, um, kind of putting them on a path to complete that, to do that, right? Um, I'll give you a good example. So we have employees who um, are very cerebral, very talented applications engineers. I mean, just next level. They're just, it's amazing how their brains work. And some of them want to teach at university. There are some companies that would be like, please don't do that for fear that they would lose them to university. You know what I mean? Like, but, but, but we don't want to do that. We want to encourage an evolution of skills. Right, an evolution of expertise. And so I think that you do that by showing people this is not all there is, right? There is something more. And the things that you want to do are important. How does that translate to a hybrid or a Boeing or a, you know, I don't know, HP? Like, how does that, how does that translate? How, how can you move forward constantly, incrementally adding to your skill set? What conferences are speaking to you? Getting out, getting out there and letting them go and intermingle with other people in industry, having important conversations and, and figuring out how they could take what they learned there and bring it back. A lot of times now what we see are companies that are saying, sure, you can develop, but you have to do it on your dime. So if you want to go to this conference, you have to pay for it. It's like, why am I going to pay for something for myself when you are a direct benefactor of my growth? I feel like companies need to be a little more invested in per personal development plans for their employees because when the employee sees that you care, then they will start to care, right? Then we will see a lot less of the 
the the new trend of quiet quitting, right? Because they feel like they actually are contributing to someone that wants to contribute back to them. Very well said. I appreciate you ping-ponging that back to me because you're absolutely right. Like it 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 comes from knowing where you want to go, right? And I think there are things companies that can do to help people know what the options of where they want to go are. And I think another thing you said was it's, it's both professional and personal, right? I mean, you're going to need both for for people to excel. Another topic that that we talked about in advance was when it comes to people, it's not just about finding people that can do a job. It's about finding people that have the capacity to do a mm, job and making sure they have yes. the capacity to do a job. I'd love for you to go into that a little bit and what you mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. So that entire uh, ethos, because I call it a personal, personal ethos of mine, um, managing my capacity, uh, really kind of was born out of a conversation I had with my mother. Um, I was a teenager in dating and she was talking about people's capacity for love. You have to be willing to accept people, uh, people's capacity for love at the level they're capable of loving. And I think mismanaged capacity is the reason why I was so (laughs) just, just absolutely discouraged during my teenage dating life. I would be all in and then be dating someone that just didn't have the same capacity as I did. And it was so funny to me that I also saw that thing in the workplace. We give, give, give to our employees, right? And we we facilitate opportunities and we say, you can go and learn this or you can go and do that. And they still leave. They're still unhappy. You know, uh, it, it doesn't pay off. And so then instead of us saying, okay, maybe that employee didn't have the capacity to manage what we have here, we turn it on ourselves and go, we shouldn't give so much. We should stop giving uh, to people because it's not worth it anymore. When the truth of the matter is, is that you have just managed to come across someone who doesn't have a capacity to fulfill the work requirements for your environment. They either need to move to another department, right? They need to change or even do an assessment of whether or not they're actually passionate about what they're doing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're always going to have um, a, a successful um, outcome just because you went in with honorable intentions. Sometimes those people are just not equipped to um, fulfill what you're expecting from them. And mismanaged capacity or capacity expectations that are not communicated, it never ends well, right? If, if I just don't have it in me, to show up to work on time. If I just don't have it in me to deliver projects on time and on budget, right? If I don't, if I just don't have it in me to be a team player, then that's not going to change no matter how much personal development you do, because I just don't have it in me. Maybe I need to find myself a nice little Starbucks where all I have to do is say hello and I have no deadlines and I have, you know, whatever it is, maybe the problem that we're having is that we're not doing enough front-end work to see if we're employing people with the capacity for what our expectations are. Mm. I'm trying to think of a, a good follow-up question to such a uh, a powerful answer, as I'll say. Is this a question of, because I want to give the manufacturing leaders listening, like, uh, okay, how do I go about making sure I'm getting the people with the right capacity? So is this mostly 
a hiring thing on the front end. As you said, there's some things we can't do to develop people to, to have that capacity, right? So is this kind of refining what your team looks like? The people that might not be a fit, might not be a capacity filter themselves out while you do more deliberate hiring. I'm just spitballing. What would be your advice to manufacturing leaders? You know what? I wish I saw more. And I'm not saying that um, um, just arbitrarily, because I, I wish I saw it more even in the company I work in. And that is uh, more of a mentoring role for people in their first 90 days. Like uh, an area where we have, number one, our, our hiring processes uh, are very, very mechanical, right? Come in, talk to one person, come in, talk to another person. Maybe you'll talk to another person. Um, and then we'll decide, it seems like you're a good fit. Everyone's going to seem like a good fit until it's time to do the work, right? I feel like maybe a mentoring process where they're with someone that's been there a while and they have the feedback of a person that's been there for a while. They can see whether or not this person is, you know, kind of suitable for this position. And then maybe making an assessment that that is a little more uh, toned in grace. And when I say that, I mean, okay, so we've made the assessment right about 30 days and this person is not right for this position. The question then should be, are they right for another position within the company? I think a lot of times people face fear uh, when saying, you know what? I'm really not interested in doing this. This is not ideal for me. I'm going to keep acting like it's okay because I don't want to have to lose my job. Instead of them saying, you know what? They are not really good with people, but they're amazing with numbers. Maybe a transition to accounting is better for them. And maybe having that open dialogue, this does not look like something that you're good for. But we have this position and based on what so-and-so observed during your training, you took to this kind of work really, really quick. Would you like to try that? I think a lot of times we don't have a either or. We hire from a place of scarcity, right? Because we're all looking for good people and good people don't seem uh, to be <laughs> you know, out there right now. And so um, a lot of times people are forced into the position of performing. And when I say performing, I mean acting like they are happy where they've been placed or they have the skills necessary to do the job for fear of losing their job where maybe we need to do a little more mentorship and we don't need to put them in a quote unquote position right away, but see where we will transition them. Say, based on this, these are your options in our company, even if it is for what they've been hired for. But if that's not it, you probably do better over here. Do you want to try that? Do you want to slip? Can I match you with a mentor in that department? And then see if we get a better outcome. Because a lot of times you just don't know. It's just like dating, right? Everybody looks great in the first 30 days. And after a while, you're sick and tired of seeing the same pair of sh shoes by the front door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. You, you've had great dating analogies in this conversation. If, if Also, if it makes you feel better, my high school dating uh, career sucked as well. So, you know, I think a lot, oh, yeah. a lot of a lot of us find yes. ourselves in, yes. in that boat. But 
great points. When I talk to people making hiring decisions, it's it's interesting, right? So many job descriptions are pretty black and white. And someone might approach me or someone I know and say, hey, I'm looking at this job. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that's the job that's available right now. That's one of them there. But I'll usually approach the hiring manager or whoever is making that decision and say, hey, this person's looking at this job. Maybe it's a fit, but I do think their vibe would go with your culture. That's usually what I highlight. And I think what you just said is a great way of like how to do that once you hire that person, right? Maybe it's a 30-day mentor period saying, hey, or it's a sampling of jobs or whatever it may be, but it's more working with them to find what job is right for them and what job, as you were saying earlier, they have the capacity for. Yeah, yeah. And the front end training of it, right? Like a lot of times, I feel like training has just gone by the wayside. There used to be a time when you were in seven days, you weren't even in the environment you were going to be working in. You were in a room, it was got lots of computers and they were training. That's the old school way of doing it. Now, everything is so new school, which is nothing wrong with that. But what we skip over is the training part. And I think we have unfair expectations of people because we're not doing that day in, day out training. This is what the expectations are. This is how you're to deliver a project. This is when it needs to be done. We're not doing that anymore. We have become so technologically advanced that we are professionally crippled, right? We just, everything is there for us. We don't have to seek out any answers anymore. And so we're not even trying anymore. We're just hoping everything will turn out okay. So I think if we did more training on the front end, matching them with someone that makes them feel a part of the company, right? Uh, you start a new job. You don't have anyone to eat lunch with. <laughs> you don't have anything like that. Just give them someone who is there. Hey, I'm going to see you every day. And I'm going to put you on the path to be as successful as you're, uh, as you're capable of being at this stage. And then hopefully that outcome ends up being something that's far more positive. Yeah. This, uh, Great advice across the board. If I look at kind of a common thread to this last part of the conversation, I think you've highlighted some really great things on how employers, manufacturing companies can create a welcoming environment that allows people to excel at what they do and who they are. I think my last question around this topic then is is something you mentioned in, in our pre-conversation and, and you made a very impactful comment. You said, don't look like a diverse company, be a diverse company. Yeah. I'd love for you to define that a little bit more for the audience out there, more in your own words. And also, how do people go about doing that? Kind of the final how-to of the conversation. Oh, I think, you know, I think the, the first thing is education. I always think education leads, and I'm not saying in a traditional college, I'm just saying become aware of what's going on in the world around you, um, in the life of your employees, and then be intentional about being involved. Um, I'm not telling everyone to go and get black t-shirts and, and protest. That's not what I'm saying, although I love black t-shirts. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, you know, with the wake of, of us coming into more awareness of racially motivated things in this country, um, they're not just starting. They're just video now, things that relate to the Me Too movement or anything in which uh, two people or a group of people that do not look the same have to be in a mashup of experience with each other. 
um, we've now seen people saying, we've got to get diversity, equity, inclusion experts. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. But we've got a whole lot of we've got to and very little of we've done. And I think that comes with a fear of acknowledging that this is an area in which they are ignorant. Um, a lot of times questioning your mindset around any issue of diversity, equity, or inclusion, um, it exposes your bubble. It exposes how little you know about the struggles and oppression or frustrations of other people. Um, if you are a man, it's going to expose how much easier things are for you in the workplace. Does that mean that you've always had it easy in the workplace? Absolutely not. However, when you compare your experiences to a woman's experience, you may say, wow, I never could even imagine that could happen to me. It could be the same with a Black employee or an Asian employee or a Hispanic employee. All these issues do, all these initiatives do is expose you to areas in which you have not had experience. So I believe the first thing we have to do is take the shame out of not knowing. It's okay not to know something. None of us knew everything we know today when we were born. We learned it. And so I tell people all the time, we have to be as intentional about evolving emotionally and socially and economically as we are professionally, right? We don't mind technology increasing and increasing and increasing and changing and growing and, and doing things new. But when it comes to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, now things have to stay the same. Now I can't think about the possibility that anything could possibly be true that I would never myself condone. That's the thing. I think a lot of times people are afraid that by acknowledging it, we're saying that they would ever condone it. And that's not what we're saying. It is entirely possible. I am an African-American woman. I have seen African-Americans do things that I would never sanction, right? However, I still have to acknowledge those things are happening in order to change them. And so I think a lot of times, just starting with the acknowledgement, this has happened. This may be some of your experiences in the workplace. I, as a leader, do not condone these experiences. And if you're having them, I want to open up to you an opportunity to share them with me without condemnation, right? I don't get to appropriate your experience by saying there's no way that happened to you here. All I get to do is sit back and listen and say, how can I make this a better experience for the next person? What can I change internally so that this is not happening? Because what you don't want is to have a slew of employees that would not dare tell you honestly what they're experiencing. I don't think there's a way I could sum up what you said any better than, than you just did. That was excellent around self-reflection, education, I think the parallel between uh, for especially for folks out there that maybe they're not as used to doing this exercise yet, that comparison to technology, I think is really helpful, right? Yeah. We're A-OK re-educating ourselves around technology and admitting that we don't know everything there. Take that same approach to diversity, equity and inclusion. A excellent parallels. I really appreciate you being 
so open with that answer. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I th it's a powerful note to end on because we are at the end of our conversation. Yes. So I have to open it up. Is there any other topic you wish we would have discussed? And if not, what's the best way to connect with you and wrap uh, you and uh, hybrid? I would just say um, the one thing I wish I would say is uh, that we would embrace our differences, uh, not just um, in the area of skin. I believe skin is the easy thing for us to focus on because we see it the most. But it is our differences um, emotionally, psychologically, the way we think, our thoughts, our practices, the way we show up in the world, our skill sets, um, knowing that everyone is important from your admin that just uh, receives the packages at the front door to your chief engineer who is developing new products for you, understanding that all areas of diversity um, are important. Um, they are vital to the success of any company. And uh, if we do that and we do that effectively, then I think we'll see um, evolution, not just in ourselves, but in our products and, and in our levels of success. So it will be that. Um, how can you find me? I am at LDB underscore N3D on Instagram. And I'm on LinkedIn, linkedin.com backslash Lisa D block. Excellent. Well, I will have links to connect with you in the show notes page so people know where to find you. And Lisa, whether I'm seeing... Oh, can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Go to www.hybridmanutech.com. That's H-Y-B-R-I-D-M-A-N-U-T-E-C-H.com so that you can connect with me with Hybrid as well. And we have a boatload of visual aids, one of which will be in the interview, but we have a boatload of visual aids on the website if you ever want to do some more research on additive manufacturing. I love it. Yes, this show notes page will be a great spot to, to get educated on additive manufacturing for folks that are just trying to sharpen their skills, learn for the first time. So this has been awesome, Lisa. Whether we're hanging out at a trade show in the future, or having those yes. beverages in Newport Let's Beach, do it. we'll uh, we'll pull it off. So, thank you so much for sharing your experience with the audience today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you, Lisa, for jumping on today's show. We mentioned a couple links there at the end, how to connect with Lisa, visiting hybrid manufacturing technologies. For all of those links, you can find those over the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 141. There you can also find the chart of the seven families of 3D printing that we referenced earlier. It's a great show notes page. I'm actually gonna be planning to add a video of a more 3D printing centric conversation with Lisa here in the future where she talks about some of the different types of additive manufacturing. So, hey, the show notes page is gonna be stacked this week, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 141. You know, I mentioned this at the start, but my one call to action for you this week is to share this episode. Put it in a post on LinkedIn, on Twitter, send it to your colleagues in an email. This is a big one. If you learn something from this episode, please let other folks know and make sure you share what you learned from this if you're sharing it to social media as well. Greatly appreciate it. And please tag Manufacturing Happy Hour if you do that. Would love to be part of the conversation and thank you personally. With that, hey, 
One more shout out to our sponsor, ePlan. Thank you for supporting this episode. And with that, stay innovative, stay thirsty, and we'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.